So we are starting a new topical series tonight, and um, we're going to cover stuff about church and the state, civil government, civil authority, uh, law, how to understand law. Um, I think it probably, we could just categorize it as political theology. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we're talking like American political parties necessarily, um, but we're talking about politics in general. And honestly, I don't know how long it's going to go. Um, this is a this is a big big subject. Probably one that this is one of those where it's like you could ask easily ask me a question and I'll just be like I don't know I, I don't have that worked out yet. Uh, there's going to be a lot of that probably. So we're going to get to what we can, but we're still probably just going to be scratching the surface of this. Um, not necessarily going to be telling you how to vote and that sort of things. Um, I have no problem telling you don't vote for anybody that's not pro life. Don't vote for anybody that accepts abortion things like that. Never vote for a Democrat. I would say that. I have no problem with that. But I wouldn't tell you to vote for a Republican. I can't tell you who to vote for, but I could say who not to vote for. It's kind of that sort of thing, but more, we're talking theory. Um, so that's probably farther than we're even going to go on this. Um, I do think this material is really relevant. I think it's become way, way more relevant in recent days as we've seen society decay. And, man, even... Even as uh, COVID came up and all that sort of thing, and governments started getting in increasingly tyrannical, uh, they started overstepping their bounds. And that's an understatement. I mean, they way, way overstepped their bounds in terms of what they did imposed on the church and everything. And I think the church got caught flat-footed. I think our, the church in general got exposed as having extremely shallow political theology and how to think through things like civil government, and then therefore the whole church kind of was just like, okay, we'll do whatever you say, and, and we have to, Romans 13, Romans 13, and it was just a very shallow type response to a government doing things that it wasn't allowed to do. And I'm not saying everything they did was wrong necessarily. Don't read into that too much. I'm just saying there was a violation uh, of the church and state, meaning the state was imposing on to the church what it was not allowed to do. Uh, things just are not as simple as saying, well, Romans 13, therefore we submit to the state. It's just not that simple. So we are going to be looking at certain positions such as theonomy, reconstructionism, dominion theology, two kingdoms theology, Kyperianism. Um, each of those have different relations to the church state or different approach, I guess, to the church state relationship. And um, I'm, don't, don't worry about like, understanding what each of those are. We're going to talk in theory and understand theories. And I'll say this, I'm not even going to come into this proposing like, here's the right position and here's the wrong position or join this camp and this one's all wrong. I'm not going to approach it that way. Uh, there is a lot of overlap between a lot of these positions. So for instance, Christians that are theonomic or want to do reconstruction or believe in dominion theology are probably in the vast, vast majority of cases, going to, for instance, vote or practice the same political things as someone that believes in two kingdoms theology or Kyperianism. Uh, I think there's just a ton of overlap, but there's still some theoretical difference, um, and it matters. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter anything, but uh, I'm not going to come in and say, I will say certain things are wrong. I'm not going to say, like, oh, theonomy is fine or something like that. Um, uh, there's going to be criticism that does land predominantly in certain camps, I'm sure, uh, over different camps, uh, though I'm not going to just sit here and argue one singular position in contradistinction to another sing singular position. Um, I don't have a predetermined landing spot 
You know, the same way that I would if, if one of us, one of us elders was teaching something on like Arminian and Calvinism. We're not going to be like, well, here's both. Maybe it's each and maybe a little mix. No, it's nothing like that. Um, we would do that with that sort of thing. But I'm not going to have as determined of a, uh, a, a uh, I guess, a definable camp, maybe. Um, not to say that there's, it's wrong to be in a definable camp. I'm just not going to approach it that way, necessarily, if that makes sense. So somebody came in and said, well, I'm two kingdoms. I'm not going to say, well, you're wrong because you say you're two kingdoms. No, they very well might be perfectly biblical and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to be wishy-washy about stuff either and how we this stuff out. Uh, I'm not going to be wishy-washy on what's right and wrong. That's not part of the plan. Uh, I don't think I'm necessarily even capable of that anyway. So uh, we will be critiquing, critiquing some ideas more than others. And I also think it's fair to say that we as Baptists, historic Baptists, have a more solid history of getting this category of issue, this type of theology, right. Um, it took some of the other Reformed folks, the other Reformed camps, a bit longer to catch up where the Baptists have been for many years. What, like, what they had been saying for many years, you know, it was the Presbyterian and the Reformed that had to catch up to us, catch up to our political theology. So, for instance, the, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the original version of the Westminster Confession confessed, and some might even say depended on, or was even framed around the existence of a state church. They wanted a Presbyterian state church to enforce a lot of these things, and thus they persecuted Baptists, amongst others. Even in America, the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists persecuted Baptists, and our political theology was more biblical or more right than theirs. Uh, and it wasn't until they got to America, until they saw that you know, their idea wasn't really going to fly, that they revised their confession to be more in line with, I guess, American ideas. Um, I don't think that's the right reason to do it, but they did at least take out the state church, and that was good that they did, but maybe not. I don't know. The history about why they did it, I guess, isn't really that relevant. They changed it, right? They took out the state church. It's not in the Westminster Confession anymore. Now, none of that is to like denigrate our Presbyterian friends, obviously. We're, we're close to them, and uh, their, their forefathers did some serious legwork in the American Revolution, and that's important. Uh, King George and some of the other British officials referred to the, the colonialist uprising as a Presbyterian war or a Presbyterian rebellion because it, it was so saturated with them, and the religious dynamic to the American Revolution was not all Presbyterian, so don't hear me saying that it, it was all Presbyterians by any means. It wasn't even all Christian, necessarily. There was a bunch of Congregationalists, too. The Baptists were technically under the Congregationalist umbrella. They were considered Baptist Congregationalists, but they were still, well, I mean, we were still the odd man out in terms of even in America. So it's, it's widely recognized that the American Revolution had a heavy Calvinistic flavor. To it, it was. I mean, of the of the religious people that were involved, it was almost exclusively Calvinistic people, Calvinistic men, and that sort of thing. They were the ones fighting for independence and liberty, and it was against a predominantly Anglican British side. And the Anglican Church depends on they have a state church. It, I mean, literally, the Anglican Church is the Church of England. So there, there is religious elements tied up. In it, and that you know that 
flavors how we think of our political theology and and we're not going to be afraid to say, well, America was wrong here or there. I'm not saying that we are going to say that, but if you need to say it, we will. Um, but that's, that's part of what's mixed up in the government that we have now, right? And we, don't, we didn't pick this government, but this is the government we have now, and this is the government we live under, and uh, it's different than other governments. So the way that we apply the biblical model or the, our biblical duties to this government are maybe a little bit different. Just as an aside... Uh, our government technically says you can overthrow the government. If they don't do what they're supposed to be doing, it says that people have a right, and does it even say duty? A duty to basically replace the government. You can overthrow it. That's allowable. Our government allows itself to be overthrown. And somebody would say, well, you can't do it biblically. Well, yeah, you can if the government says you can, right? So there's some, you know, there's some idiosyncrasies to our scenario that we're, uh, we're not going to necessarily get into all that. Um, Anyway, American colonies were, you know, under the authority of the English monarch, and he didn't have any problem overstepping his legal bounds, and it was the British or American Calvinists that were pushing back against that. And it, it really, it's no understatement to say that you can thank a Calvinist or Calvinist of the past for the existence as well as the independence of America. I mean, they literally came and started it, and they're literally the ones that won our independence. That's, I mean, that's due to the Calvinists. There was actually, I don't know if any of you read about that this week, obviously being 4th of July week, um, there's a bunch of articles coming out, but there's uh, the, the so-called black-robed regiment. I don't know how many of you guys have heard of that. That's, that refers to the large number of influential clergymen who wore, you know, they wore black robes still back then, and... Um, they supported the American fight for liberty against the British so predominantly that they referred to as the Black Robe Regiment. There's even an account, and I read about it this week, it's, it's possibly kind of apocryphal. I mean, he really existed, but the way it all went down. He was this Virginian minister named Peter Muhlenberg, and he preached a sermon kind of all about American independence or, you know, in support of it anyway, and he's wearing his black robe. And when he got finished, he took off his black robe, and he was wearing like an American colonialist uh, officer's uniform, and he went and he led a regiment in the Continental Army, and he urged the men to join him, and they literally did. They came from the church, and they, they joined him. So he, um, literal participation in the war by clergymen was rare, but that's one instance at least where it happened. Anyway, all that to say, this subject is going to be an interesting one. Uh, we're likely only going to be able to dip our toe in the water in terms of covering what we might want to cover. We I mean, go as long as we want, right? And I mean, if you guys get sick of this, then say so, uh, but we'll just deal with it until we feel like we've got a good enough grasp of it where it's, it's helpful for, I guess, we've processed enough to know how to think through political theology in, in a biblical way in our world today. So that's the goal. Uh, we're not going to get into definitions and all these different camps defining these positions yet. We have to start with uh, the biblical understanding of covenant theology and the distinction between moral and positive law. And that's mostly because of the existence of theonomy, um, or at least a, a strong theonomic. There is a strong theonomic position that I think ignores the elements of what we're going to talk about here tonight. And they, I think they get the groundwork wrong, and then it necessarily works out wrong in itself, which, again, we agree with a lot of things that a theonomist might say, but I'm talking about like the hard formal 
theonomists, not just anybody that uses that term. That term has kind of been broadened a bit uh, of late. So um, if we don't get this groundwork right, though, no matter what, we're going we're gonna to get other things wrong. If we don't understand how the covenants work and our covenant theology, which, you know, it impacts so much. That's why we're credo-baptist instead of pedo-baptist, right? Because of our covenant theology. That's why we are not dispensationalists. It's because of our covenant theology. We've got to get this right or it, it just, everything else, tons of stuff. I don't want to say everything else. A lot of stuff falls apart if you get this wrong. So we want to get covenant theology and our understanding of law correct. So that is what we're going to do. We're going to lay that groundwork tonight. So let me give an example of, I'm, I'm not going to advocate for a, 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 the formal strict theonomy type position. Um, and I use those modifiers of, formal and strict because of the, this softer, less formal version of theonomy that I'm not saying I'm not going to speak, but I, it's uh, what we're going to go through tonight undermines the formal strict form of it, I guess. Um, we'll get to that stuff later. Don't worry about that. Uh, but formal strict theonomy is dependent, I would say, on a Presbyterian view of covenant theology. And that is necessarily different than ours. We do not agree with the Presbyterians on their form of covenant theology. And it also has a distinct eschatological element that is different than the one that we believe is present in Scripture. So what I mean by that is theonomy has historically been more popular amongst Presbyterians and postmillennialists, or Presbyterian postmillennialists. That's, that's its home base. I'm not saying you can only be a Presbyterian or post-millennialist by leaving it, but they, they go hand in hand. They go together. Uh, because Presbyterian covenant theology is more consistent with a the view of theonomy, which is, again, I know I haven't even defined it yet, and we'll probably won't even define it tonight, but a, a view where, I guess, uh, old covenant laws of how to run the political realm seen in Israel are imposed on the political realm now. Um, and there's various versions or degrees by which that would happen, but that's basic understanding of theology. But what is important right now, not necessarily getting those connections, but what's important right now is getting this framework, this basic framework right. And this, this shouldn't even take that long uh, tonight. I'm going to get this basic framework we're gonna, I'm going to do it by contrasting Presbyterian and Reformed Baptist covenant theology. I think that's the easiest way to see it. And I have actually done a version of it before, covenant theology pres presentation. It was a few years ago now, which is crazy. But I went to pull out that board, and I realized, I mean, the last time we used that board was when we did this several years ago, and it's stuck on there permanently. I can't get it off. That thing just needs to go in the garbage. So we'll probably just throw that away. But I'm going to redo it because it's actually helpful to um, see it drawn out as we talk about it, I think. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divide this in half, first, first of all. I'll put the Presbyterians down here. This is Presbyterian covenant theology. And this is going to be uh, biblical. Can I call it that? Biblical? <laughs> A.K.A. Reformed Baptist covenant theology. I'm totally unbiased here. So, um, obviously, you know there's covenants in Scripture. That's ba the basic framework of how Scripture works. And Presbyterians take 
Something like, we all agree on the covenant of works. That's with Adam in the garden. God says, he gives, he, there's, there's basic law, but he says, you know, do not eat of the tree. That's the basic law. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Basic law and the covenant of works. And we have near identical agreement. For the most part, we're the same on the covenant of works. God says, do this and live to Adam. And uh, he tells him not to eat of the tree. That is the law of the covenant of works, the positive law. And I guess now is as good a time as any. Positive law is law that is dependent on a time and place. It's particular to a people and a time and a location, basically. So positive law depends on which covenant you're in. And then moral law is universal. It's based on God's character. It's always true. It's always right. Do not murder is moral law. Ten commandments are moral law. And we'll just go through this. But each covenant has its own set of moral laws. So we agree on covenant of works. Covenant of works got broken when Adam disobeyed, right? He, he ate of the tree. The very thing that, you know, the singular positive law he's given in the covenant of works, he breaks. If you're hot, we can turn down the AC. I didn't, I don't know if it got turned all the way down to begin with. I'm burning up. So if I'm hot, then that means everybody's hot. <laughs> Is anyone motion for uh, turning down the AC? If, I, if I'm hot, that means everybody's pretty hot. Okay, so from here, after the covenant of works, we do have difference. So what the Presbyterians do is they kind of have, after the covenant of works is broken, they think God instituted the covenant of grace immediately. And they think that that covenant of grace has all these different administrations and is differently administered in different ages, but it's all the same covenant itself. So they think Abraham is just an administration of the covenant of grace. They think Moses, the Mosaic, just another administration. Davidic, another administration of the same covenant of grace. And then the new covenant is basically the last administration of the covenant of grace. So they, say, they make a distinction between substance and administration. So it is the same covenant, but administered or basically run, implemented differently. If, yeah. What's that? Well, I mean, they have different rules. They'll have different positive laws uh, in each one. So... Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Or I think I used the, uh, I used the, um, the analogy once, like if you go through a drive-thru and there's two windows, you know, you pay at one window and you receive at the next window, but it's the same restaurant. Each window is an administration of that restaurant. Or you could go to the counter, I guess. That's another administration. Um, so they would probably hate this oversimplification of it, but this is what they do, basically. <laughs> So, but you can see from this how they would take something like a positive law of Abraham is circumcision, right? Well, they'll think circumcision gets replaced. It's gone. And here you have baptism. But look, you're in the same covenant. And what do you do 
with infants. You circumcise them here, here, and here. And now infants are baptized instead. You're born into it here, here, and here. Therefore, you're born into it here because it's the same covenant to them. They think it's literally the same exact covenant, the covenant of grace. You see, how they, you see why their paedo-baptism comes from this? It's, it fits their model more simply. And this is why I'm saying something like theonomy would do the same thing because Moses, the state is run this way, right? Therefore, the state is run this way the same way. Maybe slightly different because it's a different administration, but it's generally the same. So theonomy fits this model better than what I'm going to add, say in our model. They could take law here and keep too much of it because they, the reason being same covenant in their mind. I would, add, I would say, no, we don't believe that. We believe there's the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant of grace is not yet inaugurated. It has not begun. But we have the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, we have promise and we have law. This is positive law. The moral law is always there. It's always present. Moral law is always there. But we have positive law in the Abrahamic. What is it? Circumcise. Circumcision. If you don't, you're cut off from your people. You can break the law. You can break the Abrahamic covenant. But there is also a promise. Abraham, come out of the land of Ur. You're going to have a seed that comes from you. Obviously talking about Christ. A land and a people. There's going to be a kingdom. That's coming from you, Abraham. And what, what is this? It's mostly, what's the character? I like to call it the character. I don't know if that's the right word. But we're going to call the character of this prophetic. It's a prophetic covenant of what God is going to do through Abraham. There's going to be a people. There's going to be a seed. There's going to be a kingdom. There's going to be a land. And here's the positive law. Circumcised or you're cut off. Okay? Now these, don't, these covenants don't replace each other. But Moses is then layered on top of it. And you have the Mosaic covenant. And again, Mosaic covenant is one of promise and law. Now you know all the laws. It's it's circumcision. Circumcision is still there. You've got to get circumcised. But it's all the ceremonial law. It's all the judicial law. It's how to run Israel as a theonomic state. That's positive law for the Mosaic covenant. Because he didn't tell them to do it in the Abrahamic, right? He didn't. He told them to do it in the Mosaic. And it's all the temple worship, the ceremonial cleanness. That's all positive law. It's not people, for instance, Adam was not sinning by not being ceremonially clean because that's positive law. It's not, it doesn't apply to him. He's not in that Mosaic covenant. Therefore, it's, it's not based on right or wrong. But in both covenants, Adam would be wrong to murder, and it's wrong to murder in the Mosaic because that's moral law. It's a difference in the type of law. But there's promise of, a, of, of someone coming like Moses. There's, it's um, promising, ultimately, in its types and shadows, it's, it's promising a priest. Because this is a, the, the character is priestly. It's a priestly covenant. It's about the, the ceremonies, the temple, and all that sort of thing, right? So you have a prophetic and a priestly covenant layered on top of each other. And here's time. This is just, this is just general, this is revelation, which is increasing over time. More and more revelation is being given. Time goes on. What does God layer on top of this once they're in the land? The Davidic you got a Davidic covenant. And again, there's promise. What is the promise? A branch of David is coming. Right? What's the law? Be this type of king. If you're not this type of king, I'm going to remove you from the throne. And he did that. So what is the nature of this covenant? You probably can guess it. Kingly. Kingly covenant. 
Or you could just say royal. But so you got these three covenants, and they're layered on top of each other, right? There's still the circumcision. You still all the kings are supposed to be circumcised. That comes from back here. They're still in the Abrahamic. These layer on top of each other. And all together, I think you can talk about it this way. This is the old covenant economy. So when the Bible talks about the old covenant, it's not specific of one. It's all three of them together. The old covenant had a prophetic, priestly, and kingly element to it. And each of them had promises about a Christ that was coming, and each of them had specific laws, laws that applied to the king, the, the, the priests, and to the prophet, and, and how to be part of it. Okay, and what does Christ do? He fulfills this in his trifold office as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Does that make sense? He fulfills these covenants so that they can be actually replaced. Because see how they're layering on top of each other? Not with Christ. He fulfills it, and now it is distinctly different. Fulfilled. Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, we'll just say fulfilled in Christ. What does he do? He implements the new covenant. And this is not the same covenant. It's not layering on top of these covenants. These covenants are getting fulfilled and going away. The new covenant is actually a different covenant. It's not the same covenant with a different administration. It's an actual new covenant. My W's keep looking like N's. And in this new covenant, what's he have? New law. With new covenant comes new law. What do we have in the new covenant? Baptism. This is all positive law. Lord's Supper tells you to do it. Uh, Great Commission. Go and tell the world. That was not told to any of these before. Let's say, go to church. Do not forsake the, the assembling of the saints. This is how the new covenant practices worship. It's not with the temple. You're not under a king. It's different. So Christ fulfilled all of this, replaced it, and now we have a new covenant with new positive law. And that's, that's what I want to, see, want to see in this, is how positive law applies to a certain time and a certain place and a certain people. It depends on which covenant you're in. So when you say, is it wrong to murder? Well, yes, that's moral law. That's always wrong. Adam couldn't do it all the way back at the covenant of works. That's true all the way through. It's going to be true eternity because it's based on God's character. Can you say, well, is it a sin not to get baptized? Wait, where are we? Here? Yes. Here? No. Because they weren't commanded to be baptized because they're in a different covenant. Is it wrong to eat meat uh, that's been sacrificed to idols? Where are we at? Uh, touch certain unclean things. Where are we at? Here? Yes, that's wrong. Here? No. doesn't matter. And this applies to our political theology, too. It has overlap and spillover into our political theology. So you can ask certain questions about the state, and it will be like, well, what state are believers supposed to be in? I mean, if we're in a theonomic Israel... We have a set of laws here to apply to the state. Here, no, we, do, we are not given a state. The state's told to bear the sword against evildoers, so they're spoken to. It's not that there's no, you know, it's not like, okay, do whatever you want. But it's not the same as here. So you can't just take it and import it into the new covenant. In, in our day and age, the day of grace, because this new covenant is the, I should have said this earlier, this is the covenant of grace. New covenant equals the covenant of grace. You ask that same question here, 
And some could even argue that theonomy is more consistent with the Presbyterian, not that it's more consistent, almost more necessary, right? Because of their model, which I would argue is, it's oversimplified. I mean, this is a very simple model. It looks much easier to understand and explain. I mean, you could argue people into paedo-baptism way easier with, with the simplicity of this, like, oh, but you circumcised infants. Oh, that's right. Therefore, you baptized. Oh, okay. No, that's too simple. It's just flattening out all the covenants, right? So, even though this is more complicated, it's more biblical. The one thing that we are, are you, do you have a question? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out. This is the only example I can think of, so I'm sorry, but um, a lot of people go back and say, well, Jesus in the New Covenant never commanded us to not do anything with uh, non humans. And they would go back and say, well, that's a command from the past, so that's why we still obey that law. A command to not do anything with non humans? More, yeah, like moral law, it, it applies no matter what. So things like the Ten Commandments, the sexual ethics of, of the Old Testament, the people, you know, they're like, oh, but you, you eat these unclean foods that the Bible says not to eat, and then yet you still say homosexuality is wrong. It's like, it's because homosexuality is moral law, and the food laws are ceremonial law, and they don't know how to distinguish between law. So, yeah, that's... A, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't lay it out like these are all the moral laws and these are all the ceremonial. You have to kind of distinguish. And sometimes it gets complicated because there's certain moral laws that you can make that have positive law punishments or ramifications. So it's always wrong to commit adultery. But in. Yeah. But in, in, the, in theonomic Israel, the state was to put to death adulterers. Or at least that was a, an allowable punishment, not necessarily that they had to. Right, so the day of grace does not treat every single moral law as a death sentence. or It's just different. I mean, we can get into the particulars, but it's different, right? So the other thing is, the grace or the salvation that's one here, the New Covenant, is retroactive back here. They're always saved by faith back here, even though they're in a different covenant. But because this is retroactive, Christ's benefits are retroactive, then you're still saved by faith back here. Your, you, your, your faith is in a Messiah to come here, right? It's a prospective faith of a Messiah that's coming. You're looking forward, and you don't know who he is, but you get, you get, um, you get more and more... Revelation, increasing revelation about where he's going to be born, the things he's going to do, and once all the prophets are together, you've got a pretty good picture that when Jesus shows up, you can identify him. So their picture of the Messiah, it's like a light that's, that's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. It's turned up all the way until Christ shows up and the lights are on. And then you're like, oh, there he is. Because look at all the, all the general revelation that, that showed us what he was going to be like. Now the faith, though, in these different covenants, the faith that's looking to a Messiah it's going to practice these positive laws. So these positive laws are still going to be general indicators to someone's faithfulness, if their faith is real. So it essentially works the same way. Someone with true saving faith is going to get circumcised in the Abraham, in all of these covenants. They're going to get circumcised because they know what God said to do. And you cannot, if you break the moral law, you by default break the moral law. If you, sorry, if you break the positive law, 
you by default break the moral law. Because you're, God said to do something, and you said you can't break that law without breaking the law that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're being disobedient. So if you break positive law, you necessarily break moral law. Now, if you break moral law, you don't necessarily break positive law, but it does work the other way. So obedience to the positive law in each of these is going to be an indicator of the genuineness of someone's faith. Now, do they, they're just like us. They failed. David committed adultery. He broke the positive law about the type of king he's supposed to be. He took many wives for himself. So did Solomon. They broke positive law, but David repented. It doesn't mean he's not a believer. It just means, you know, he's a sinner like the rest of us. Um, and he believed in the promises of forgiveness, and therefore he was saved. So, yeah. That's moral law. It's in the Ten Commandments, moral law. You keep the Sabbath. Now, there are civil positive law. Um, well, if you're in the covenant, you're supposed to be doing it. Well, moral law, everybody's supposed to do it, no matter what. Every time, every place, moral law always applies, whether you're in the covenant or not. But there are ramifications for not, civil ramifications, positive law ramifications for not keeping the Sabbath if you're in the covenant. You can get put to death for it if you're in the covenant. If you're a Gentile, you're still supposed to keep the Sabbath. You're, spo- you're still supposed to rest one day a week, but there's no death penalty for it by forsaking it because you're not in the covenant. So this is, this is basically, this is set up as a picture of, of holiness, like what it takes for, to live with God in your presence. This is how hard it is. It was intentionally impossible. There's, no one ever did this. No one ever kept all these positive laws and, and the moral laws the way that they were supposed to. And that's the whole point of it. It's just like, this law is just showing you how bad it is because if God is that holy. Look at all this ceremonial cleanness stuff you have to do just to wipe away the, the, the sin that's all, you know, as cover it up. Now, it didn't permanently cover it up. Obviously, Christ's blood is the only thing that does that. But um, it was a picture of that sort of thing. But yeah, the Sabbath would fall in the moral law category. But again, that's one of those laws that has bleed over into the positive elements of, uh, of how it's kept. Yeah. Right. Right. And th- yeah, that would, that would, I think be corrected by these, mo- this model. They could correct it too, but I don't think as well as we can. Um, and then the one thing that we are leaving out is the Noahic covenant, obviously. So we're not going to ignore Noah, but it's not really part of this because the Noahic covenant is not salvific. But it does have implications for society, for culture, because that's what the Noahic covenant was about. It was recreation. Now, remember, in the covenant of works, God gives uh, commands about the things we're supposed to do. Keep and guard the garden, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Things like that that aren't necessarily positive law of the covenant of works, but they are how Adam was supposed to interact with his world, right? Keeping God the garden has ramifications for, you know, how to treat God's creation, what to do with it. And he says, take dominion of it, too. That, you know, there's a, there's a theology called dominion theology that might take that too far. Possibly we'll get into it eventually. So Noah is basically the new it works for society. It tells Noah how to interact with 
culture and society. It sets up at least a baseline model. Because this is where we get, if you shed the man of blood by man, your blood shall be shed. If you kill, you deserve to be put to death. You ought to be put to death. That has societal ramifications. A pro-life position based on the Noahic covenant, which I would say carries over, is you put murderers to death. And therefore, you reduce the number of murders. That's the pro-life position. People are like, how can you be pro-life by advocating death? Because people deserve death sometimes. Murderers deserve death. So we're not forcing Noah into this, but we're not going to ignore it either. I think Noah, the Noahic covenant, is the most overlooked covenant when it comes to the church and the state and political theology. And we're going to use Noah. Not tonight, but when we get into this. So I know this is like, why are we talking so much covenant theology? It's because we have to understand the model so that we treat law correctly. And the reason that we can carry over from Noah is because he's not part of this, that it's fulfilled and abrogated in Christ. Not that he, does, Christ doesn't, he fulfills all things, right? But not, he's not doing away with the, the implications of the Noahic covenant necessarily. So, yeah, okay. That's not right. <laughs> Lost all the sticky notes in the flood. All right. Okay, so with the Presbyterian view, they call all the covenants a covenant of grace. Or they, they say it's an administration of the covenant of grace. And we say that that cannot be because the stipulations of the laws that are in them are made them covenants of course. Yeah. Leviticus. 18.5 literally says, do this and live. How can that be covenant of grace? You, you want some of my, I love my seminary professors, and I love Presbyterian, but they were saying, well, the Mosaic covenant that says do this and live, they say, it's, a, it's the covenant of grace with an operative works principle. Yeah, wrap your minds around that. I'm sorry, but that doesn't make sense. It is a covenant of works. It is law. Do this and live is like the most basic definition of law, a law covenant. So whenever, what's that? Yeah. And so they have to come back around and you have guys that are now trying to figure out how to fit that in to, because you can't. Like, yeah. There's no way, it's, it's really wild and interesting to listen to them try to work their way around. It is. Yeah. So is stipulation that is required. It makes that yeah, you're cut off from your people. Like you're, you're out of the covenant community by breaking that. Abraham was about to be put to death for not circumcising. Or was that Moses? Moses was about to be put to death for not circumcising his kids. And his wife did it and threw the foreskins at his feet. He's going to die for that. That is breaking the covenant. <laughs> if there ever was one. He was, gonna, he was not doing this and was therefore not going to live. So, so Stipulations that we have is that every stipulation that we have within the new covenant, the real stipulation has been fulfilled in Christ. Right. Making baptism more suffering. Uh, great commission. What? Great commission. Aren't you a great commission Baptist? <laughs> are not works that are done to get us into the new covenant. It's works that we do because we're. Yeah, and we can say um, the do this and live, it's not that it goes away, it's that it's fulfilled in Jesus. So 
It, it can tell us in the new covenant, members of the new covenant, and said, Jesus did this, and now you live. So go and do likewise. And you can, you can, that's why you can be out from under the law in terms of its curse, and yet operate according to the law still. We're still under the law in terms of our obedience. We're just not under its curse anymore. It doesn't hang over us like the sword of Damocles. You're going to, you mess up, it's coming down, you're going to die. That's gone. And that's why you can rest permanently while you work. You can work from your rest, which is why we changed the Sabbath. You work for your rest all through here. You're working, working, working. Okay, you did it. You get to rest. Here, you start with your rest. Jesus did it. It's done. You can rest. And now you can go work. So you work from your rest, where here you work for your rest. That preposition matters big time. The change of the day of the Sabbath thing is in accordance with the changing of the nature of the covenants from, from works to grace. It's way more consistent. It's just more complicated, but it's way more consistent. Do you think they could use that same the way that they argue is basically the principle of being born into the covenant always remains. Yeah, they're not saying it saves. They're saying it's just a sign. A sign, they say it's a sign and a seal, but it's a seal that can be broken. We say baptism is a sign. The Holy Spirit is the seal. They would say you can break the covenant of grace. That's not very safe. Yep. So in the Presbyterians, we have a correlation between circumcision and baptism. Yep. Why? Arbitrarily? They say it's the, the sign for infants, and the sign and seal for infants here, therefore it's the sign and seal for infants here. They'll go to Colossians 3, but the argument wasn't formally made until guys like Calvin and the Reformation, like, they thought of a good argument for it. They're, they're trying to protect an unbiblical tradition. Huh? They use that. It doesn't, the most honest ones will admit that's not what that's talking about. It's talking about the legitimacy of children. Um, but they do use that argument. They, they use Acts 2 saying this promises for you and your children and those who are far off, which they tend to ignore, they just stop. See, it's for you and your children. Like, okay, well, the promises here don't get broken. So when they're broken in their children, because they basically speak about it like they're guaranteed that their kids are going to be saved by virtue of being born into the covenant, but they can't practice that consistently, therefore they're in a mess. Then there's, there's theologies like federal vision that is more consistent with their heir with itself, but still wrong. They basically Arminianize the New Covenant. They turn it into a, you can be temporarily elect. You can be temporarily in Christ because you're born in Christ. That's why you have the sign and seal. The baptism puts you into Christ. Therefore, you're in Christ and you're temporarily elect. You're temporarily in Christ. But then you, you can lose that by not being faithful to the covenant. And so you're just turning this back into a covenant of works and, and you're just turning it into like the Arminian idea of losing your salvation. It's a, it just does not make sense. So, But it's more consistent with their model, I would say. So... Yeah. It's just a continuation. But I love how the other 
Yeah. It is a beautiful Shekinah glory. Or the other, to me, is just so Christ is minimized. Yeah, it just makes it another administration. And they'll say Christ is in these. And you would also say, some of them will say, well, you know, Old Covenant is Moses and David, and the New Covenant is a renewal or a redoing of the Abrahamic or a fulfilling of the Abrahamic, but not the Mosaic. And it's just like you are jumping through all kinds of hoops trying to get this to work because they're, they're forced to this by their confession. Um, but again, you know, it just, it just, it's a vast over. And again, I, to, to be fair to them, they would hate this simplification that I'm putting into this, but they also don't have a ton of agreement amongst themselves on this either. So if they, if they say that, Or, or, or a renewal, I, sometimes they'll say. And then they bring uh, circumcision over into the covenant baptism. You're bringing the work into the covenant grace. Yeah. It seems like you're making the new covenant work. Well, they'll say because it's done to infants, and it's gracious to them because they have no part in it. They just passively receive. It's probably the argument. Circumcision is just a gracious act. To the, to the child, yeah. But, yeah, that's not how it's spoken of. That's not why Moses is being Moses is about to die. It's because we're not like a bunch of people who have to be yes, we'll be And I don't remember it, but I think I can say with confidence it doesn't feel very gracious when you get it either. <laughs> but this is what you do in order to be in that Yeah, you've got to do it to be in there. When when unbelievers yeah, when unbelievers came into Israel, they got circumcised, and that determined whether or not they were a Jew. Did I hear a question over here? You're on my bad side. So they, didn't, they don't have like some type of ritualistic circumcision that they do in the Presbyterian faith. They just say circumcised. Circumcision is replaced by baptism in you. Okay. And yet they unjustifiably baptize women for some reason. I don't know why. Well, yeah, they have no justification for it. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to baptize a woman because... They had never circumcised women here, so why would you do it here? Well, it's just another inconsistency that they have, I would argue. Again, they would hate that, but truth hurts. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, they had ceremonial. They had tanks, and, uh, and they would sprinkle with the blood, and um, that was a type of washing for a larger group. But not, yeah. They had tanks for the uh, the priest to wash in. Um, yeah. Anyway. They speak of it that way because they they speak of them being born into the covenant by default, and you're baptized into the covenant. So those kids, they will say are Christians in the covenant. And so, but what they'll say, they'll distinguish is, they'll say, they're in the administration of the covenant, but not in the substance of it. You can only be in the substance of it by faith, but you can be baptized into the administration of it. To be into the substance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, they, they're supposed to. They're, sp they're supposed to say you can only get in the substance of the covenant of grace via faith, but you're baptized into the administration of it. 
And it's Baptists that say, the administration is supposed to be as close to the substance as possible. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Federal vision, yeah, they, so what they do is they basically say that baptism is effective in actually putting them into the substance of the covenant. They, they, they're more consistent in saying these baptized kids are saved. Sometimes they'll say by their baptism. They're saved, they're regenerate, they're in Christ. They're in, they'll say they're in some form of union with Christ. It's hard to get exact definitions of what they'll say, but they'll, they'll want to say they're in Christ in some form or fashion. Don't they also allow yes, and typically they'll give them communion as well, which again is more consistent, but even worse air. So their consistency drives them deeper into air, but the consistency at least is nice. Yeah, yeah there's, some, uh, there's some Catholic leanings to them. They, they want to see a Catholic in the negative sense, not the good sense. Sorry. I think uh, the, the particular Baptist of the 17th century defined it the best, but it, it didn't necessarily need to be defined to this level or, or, you know, covenant theology developed in its definitions, kind of like all theology responds to error. They did that in the Reformation. That was the first time that argument had been made. All the other previous arguments were generally in line with baptismal regeneration or some misunderstanding of it actually washing away sin. So when we talked about baptism in the early church, we talked about how some people kept putting it off to the very end of life because they wanted to do it as close to the end of their life as they could, like ideally right before the moment of your death so it washes away all your sin and then you die perfectly pure because they're misunderstanding what baptism is. Or they would move it to the very beginning of life because they think it regenerates, and therefore you basically turn this baby into a Christian automatically. Is that what they kind of do with Catholics? Yeah, they, they believe in baptismal regeneration. Don't they like do that right before death? They're supposed to anoint you. No, they 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 administer what's called last rites, which they believe is a sacrament. Oh. Um, but they do infant baptism, and they think it regenerates, and then they. Justify. Yeah. 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 We're greatly indebted to Augustine, but his uh, or Augustine, but his his theology was sometimes really good and sometimes really bad. Yeah. All right. So hopefully this makes sense, and hopefully we can build off this in the future. It will be not taking civil law from the Mosaic and too easily imposing it into the New Covenant era. Now, our confession says in, I want to say, 19.4, you know what, my, yeah, my phone's there. Um, I, I believe it says, though, and it talks about those laws being fulfilled 
And it, it talks about the ceremonial being abrogated because of its fulfilling. It's the chapter on law. Where is it? Is it not 19? Law of God. 20, 20 or sorry, 19, I was right. Um, so he gave them sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of the people, not obligating any now by virtue of that institution. So the institution of Israel is gone, therefore those laws no longer obligate, but it does say their general equity only being of moral use. So there is bleed over between some of these laws that have moral there's a general equity between them that has moral use and things are right and wrong. So we would give an instance of uh, in the Old Covenant civil law, you were supposed to have a parapet or, or basically a fence around the top of your house because people up and, and hung out on the tops of the houses. There's like the porch. Well, if you're going to do that, you have to have a fence because people are going to fall off too easily. They're going to die. It's a civil law. You have to have that. Well, it's like, why would the civil law talk about a fence? That's pro-life. So... A general equity principle would be something like if you're going to have a pool in your backyard, maybe you need to have a fence around your backyard because a kid could too easily wander back there or you have to have a pool cover or, you know, there, there could be some general equity that is of moral use that tells us how to do things now at application. Because all of this is just this is case law. It's just a bunch of case law and you use case law to extrapolate from it and sometimes interpolate between it of of um, how we implement it now from the general equity that's present within that case law. Yeah. yeah, they're supposed to do the same thing. Well, there's just some that kind of take that principle farther than because of the simplicity of how you can do that. Same covenant. They do it a little more simply. They don't see the roadblocks. This barrier here is not there for them. And you just kind of hop, skip, and jump to these, and things keep carrying over, whereas we hit this block and things change when, the, when it's all fulfilled. So they just have a general tendency to carry along with them some of the principles from these old covenants. We were, I, I think it's fair to say we're just a little bit more hesitant and more careful in doing that, more discerning in seeing the general equity, whereas they, not all of them, but that's where theonomy tends to live for the most part. And they're the ones that tend to take this law. Well, it says this here. We do it now. We need our civil government to do the same thing. Is there anything that they would say we do? And we're kind of calling them out what they can do with things that there's a wall that separates a lot. We don't do the Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff now unless it's like leading with morality between it. So they accuse us of kicking the kids out of the covenant. Like the kids are in the covenant here, and then you guys kick them out here. And now the covenant promises don't apply to your kids. It's like, no, it is for us and our kids, and all those who are for, are those, all those who God calls to himself. That's who it's for. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we say, well, if it's such a bad thing not to give them baptism, wasn't it a really bad thing not to give them circumcision? So why did God set up a sign to seal that's so essential to them receiving something that half of the population doesn't even get? What's that? 
how can they, you know what I'm saying? It just seems to me like, well, it makes sense. If man puts them in covenant, as opposed to God doing yeah, because they, they get into the administration of the covenant by this act that they do. But they're in this covenant. So we're keeping them out of the same covenant when we don't give them that sign. Because if you're not in the administration, you can't be really in the, you're not going to be in the substance. So they're... We can agree with the administration and substance. We can say the church is an administration of the covenant of grace. We don't necessarily mean it the same way as them, though. Because you're not in the covenant. It's just how it's administered. Yeah. And somebody can come to faith and they're immediately in the substance of, of the covenant and they haven't yet joined a church because they haven't even been to church maybe yet. So they come in and then they join the administration. So um, we can use the same concepts, but not exactly how they do it. Right. 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 Exactly right. And we talked about that when we uh, covered baptism. Uh, what? Somewhere in Peter, I think, when it, the baptism now saves you. We, that was a point that we brought up because it's very, very good. And I'm glad you saw that. That's exactly right. Um, now, we could, you could make the argument, well, everybody has to be baptized, but you have a baptism imputed to you through ba- Christ's baptism, but that's every law that we're supposed to obey. So... That's the difference. The stipulations within the new covenant, um, or within the old covenant, kept you within the covenant. The stipulations within the new covenant are not that way. Yeah. It's all flowing from Christ. Right. Right. And these are not the only ways to be said. We know there was people outside of these administrations, like Melchizedek was not a Jew. Um, Abraham's, or Moses' father in law was a priest of God Most High. He didn't come from Israel. Um, so you can get into the new covenant and have and be saved by faith even back here. Um, but again, that's a, that's a bigger bag of worms that we're not going to get into. Okay, we're good? All right. Anyway, we're going to build on this concept and understanding the difference between moral and positive law so that we don't incorrectly impose into the political realm now what was imposed on the political realm then. And it's going to be because we understand the covenants differently. Okay. Uh, let's, let's pray quick and have a, uh, a song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to kind of go through this. We pray that this framework would become more and more true and more and more clear in our minds. And as we read scripture, we would see how you've operated in history to save everyone from the beginning of time through faith alone. Uh, I pray that we can be consistent in how we work this out and understand it. Guard us from misunderstanding how to love the church and how to be under the authority of a civil government as we go through this. Uh, Guide and direct our thinking. Guide and direct our interpretation of Scripture and prevent us from falling into error. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.